The following audio is brought to you by Emmanuel Baptist Church in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. More information about our church can be found at emmanueltuscaloosa.org. Sermon text for this morning is from Psalm 48. Psalm 48, if you want to go ahead and be turning there. It says this, A song, a psalm of the sons of Korah, Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, His holy mountain. Beautiful in elevation is the joy of all the earth, Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great King. Within her citadels, God has made Himself known as a fortress. For behold, the kings assembled, they came on together, As soon as they saw it, they were astounded. They were in panic. They took to flight. Trembling took hold of them there. Anguish as of a woman in labor. By the east wind you shattered the ships of Tarshish. As we have heard, so have we seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, which God will establish forever. Selah. We have thought on your steadfast love, O God. In the midst of your temple, as your name, O God, so your praise reaches to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is filled with righteousness. Let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. Walk about Zion. Go around her. Number her towers. Consider well her ramparts. Go through her citadels, that you may tell the next generation that this is God. Our God forever and ever, He will guide us forever. What does it mean for a church to say that God is among us? What does it mean when we say God is here, God is with us? How do you know? If you're just looking at a church, if you're looking at a manual Baptist church, or maybe you're looking at some other church, how do you know whether God is there? What would you say? How, how would you evaluate it if you had to ask, is God really at that church? Is He active in that church? Is He doing something in that church? What what criteria would you look at to say, God is on the move there? Is it attendance? Well, you know by me bringing that up, that's not the answer that I would expect. I never give the answer right at the beginning, right? So you know that's not true. But isn't that the way we think sometimes? Well, they're busting at the seams. They must be doing something right. God must be on the move there. Is it money? They don't have any budget constraints. God must really be with that church. Perhaps it's the smoothness of the operation. Man, everything just works there. It's just simple. God must really be doing something there. Or perhaps it's the facilities. Man, look how beautiful everything is. Look how elaborate the decorations. Look how pleasing to the eye everything is. How do we know as a church... Emmanuel Baptist Church, Tuscaloosa, Alabama. God is among us. What's the criteria? 
The beauty of the book of Psalms is that any one psalm can be read in isolation of another. In other words, the context of the psalm is pretty much contained within the psalm itself for the most part. In fact, at the very beginning of this psalm, you'll see at the very top there's this heading there that calls Psalm 48 a song. Meaning it is self-contained and it's meant to be sung. And that's what we see in the book of Psalms, isn't it? It's, it's something of an ancient hymnal or perhaps even just generally a book of poetry. Now that being the case, that for the most part, the Psalms are self-contained. The context is right there in the singular psalm. There are some times where the Psalms are connected by theme. That one psalm is connected to some of the psalms that have come before it. Whether they were written at the same time or not is irrelevant. They're put together there next to each other, back to back, because of their connected themes. And that's the case with Psalm 48. If you go back to Psalm 46, we saw a couple of weeks ago, Psalm 46 helped us understand that God is our refuge and strength. The psalm makes mention of that. The psalmist in that psalm compared God's people to a city. The the rivers make glad the city of God, he says uh, once in, in that psalm. And he said this because... He is a fortress to her. He he calls himself a fortress to her and to his city people. He says there in verse 5 of of Psalm 46, God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. And then in verse 11, he says, the God of Jacob is our fortress. All of those themes of of God's people being a city, God dwelling in her midst, God being a fortress to them is all coming back in this psalm. And then last week in Psalm 47, the psalmist dealt with what it means for God's people to worship Him, to come to Him in spirit and in truth, and to give Him praise. And and while there's, there's a number of things that the Bible has to say about worship, the thing that we talked about last week is that a core principle of worship is the act of God's people paying joyful tribute to their king. In fact, the most common words used in the Old and New Testament for worship means literally to bow down. It's to come before God and bow down and pay homage to Him. Those themes also from Psalm 47 are coming back in this psalm. So both of the last two psalms are... There's at least a few aspects of those psalms that are coming back in this psalm. And speaking of this psalm, the life of God's people together. The first, Psalm 46, is the security that the people of God have. He's their fortress. He's their their rock, their deliverer. He's their security. That theme is coming back. And the second in in Psalm 47 is the response that the people of God give to Him being that fortress to them. They come to worship Him because of who He is. All of those things coming back in this psalm. This morning our psalm is in some ways like Psalm 46. In some ways it's like Psalm 47 because it gives another exhortation to praise God. But it's also its own psalm 
Because while it does sound a lot like Psalm 46 and Psalm 47, we're now going to see the people of God, the city of God, in action. What does it look like if God is actually in the midst of His people? What is it they do? How do they operate in relation to the rest of the world if God is actually in their midst? What does it mean for God to be among His people? First, I want you to notice something that we have to get clear before we even start. This is something that can often trip people up, and I recognize that when you read the book of Psalms, so much of it is poetry, and very few people in any given church are going to say, poetry is my jam. I, see, I go home, and I just read books of poetry. And, and when, when I'm home, and I'm reading books of poetry, I get every word that's stated, all the flowery and poetic language, all the, the metaphors and similes, I, I get all those. I can right now define the difference between a metaphor and a simile. Right? Not many people are going to fall into that category, so I recognize that. So before we even start, we need to see how the psalmist is speaking about the city of God. Because throughout this psalm, he just describes this city, and he uses the language of this city. The psalm even opens in verse 1, if you look there, by talking about the city of our God there in verse 1. He mentions it again in verse 8, this city of our God, along with, you see there, his holy mountain. So now we're getting the picture not just of a, a city, but also with a mountain in the middle of this city. It's a mountainous city. And he calls that mountain Mount Zion. Again, there in verse 1. And then in verse 12, he talks about Mount Zion, this city, and its towers. And in verse 13, he talks about its ramparts and its citadels, the castles and the you know, the places of protection and things like that. It sounds like he is describing a physical city. To make matters even more difficult, Zion is an actual place on this earth. It's a physical location in Jerusalem. There in Jerusalem is Mount Moriah where the temple sat. And Mount Zion, which is right next to it, eventually the whole mountainous area became known as Mount Zion. This is the place where God dwells. So it's an actual physical location in Jerusalem. So everything in this psalm is making our minds go to a physical city. But this idea of a city is, pretty, is a pretty common image in the Old Testament and in the New, especially in the Psalms and in the Prophets. For the residence of God, the place where God dwells. So if you think about it just for a second, the place where God dwells is literally the city of God. So you think about it and you go, why, why would the psalmist call God's people a city? Because God dwells in his people. So if he dwells there, that is his city. If he dwells among them, that is his residence, his place of living, his city. So God's people became known as the city of God, became referred to as Zion. 
And we know that he's talking about more than merely the physical location of Zion because of a couple of clues throughout this psalm that kind of trigger our minds to think, okay, I see what he's doing here. It's something a little bit more than just a physical location. If you look at verse 2, he tells us that Mount Zion is in the far north. Well, that's not where Zion actually is. Zion is actually in the far south, in Judah. The physical location is in the far south. But the far north becomes an image in biblical literature for the place where God is. The heavenlies, as it were, is in the far north. For us, we would say up. All right? But the Bible often refers to the place where God dwells in the far north. This is actually true, not just of the Bible, but also ancient Near Eastern literature. And we see this reiterated in the phrase just before it, where the city of Zion is the joy of all the earth, not just of the nation of Israel, of all the earth. Verse 8 tells us that this city is one in which God will establish forever. So it's not just the physical location of Zion. This is a forever place that God will establish. In verse 11, Zion is there compared to the, the daughters of Judah, the people of God. There. Finally, in verse 14, after examining all these parts of Zion, the ramparts and the citadels and the number of towers and all that, the psalmist says, this is our God. Does that mean he's worshiping the towers and the ramparts? No. It means that what he's using the city to do is to represent God's presence among us. What is it that he has done? He has fortified our walls. He has protected us, his city, his people. He has sheltered us. He has secured us. Nothing can penetrate our defenses. That's what he's saying. This is what God has uniquely done for his people. You tracking? That's poetry, right? And that's what makes it so difficult sometimes to grab onto and to wrap our minds around. But that's what he's talking about. So at the beginning, we have to understand that these images of the city are images for the people of God that God dwells in, that he protects, that he has provided for, that he has secured, that he has made their, their walls, their fortress impenetrable. In other words, God indwells the ramparts, the citadels, which are representatives of his people. And the psalmist declares that it's us, God's people, who he's been talking about and are the recipients of God's leadership. So this psalm is poetry. It's using an image of a city to describe the people of God. The reason it does this and that the city makes that nice metaphor for God is because that is the place where God dwells. He indwells his people. And I would say even in our New Testament age, we read this psalm with Christ in mind, knowing that because of what Christ does, he has indwelt his people with his Holy Spirit and will forever dwell within them. Therefore, God's people are literally the city of God. Now, this psalm has four stanzas to it, and each stanza will, will, will be seeing the answer to the question, if it's true that God dwells within us, that God is actually here in our midst, 
in Emmanuel Baptist Church in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. How can we know? What are the kinds of behaviors, actions of God's people if it's true that God is actually in our midst? In other words, if God be among us, what will we do? Well, first, we're going to see if God be among us, we will and must praise Him. Look at verse 1. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. Within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. Now we're used to seeing this command over the last several psalms even, that God is expecting praise and worship to come out of the mouths of his people, not just on Sunday morning, but throughout the week as well. God is expecting praise from his people. God's people are to worship God. But here, it's a feature of the city itself. The entire city as a, as a whole is reverberating with the sound of praise coming to God from the mouth of the people as God dwells there in the midst of them. There's a general rec recognition amongst the citizens of God's kingdom that the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. That's how the psalm opens. That's what his city should be. It should be a reverberation of how great the Lord is and how greatly he is to be praised. If you notice, there's a couple of components to this praise. The first is that the city in verse 2, is the joy of all the earth. Meaning that that's the place where God's praise resounds, is there in the hearts and in the mouths of His people. That if you want to hear what worship sounds like, you need to be around the people of God. They are the ones that reverberate His praise around all the earth. Second, you see, it's on the basis, as we see in verse 3, that he has made himself known to her as her fortress, a place of protection in the midst of a terrible storm. So there's, there's the two components that make up our worship. One is that it's joyous praise, and the second is that it's on the basis of God's being a protector for us, a guide for us, one who has sheltered us from or in the midst of the storm. Last week in uh, talking about worship, I focused mainly on what you and I give in worship, that you and I bring praise to God, that you and I bring homage, we bow down and we worship God as the basis of our worship. We pay homage to who he is. And I focused on that mainly because I felt like that is what the psalm was mainly about. However, that's not all the Bible has to say about worship. No one sermon can possibly gather all the many things that the Bible has to say on the topic, or at least that's not what we were doing last week. Worship is not only then about giving to God. It's not only about you coming and giving to God and never receiving. I don't mean to say that. 
In fact, when you come in a state of neediness to worship God and pay homage to Him, He actually, as your God and Lord, takes great pleasure in filling you up. In actually giving you something. But what we get out of worship is not a removal of all of our sorrow. In fact, on any given week, you might come in here to pay homage, to bow down and worship the great Creator who made you and saved you and sustains you. And you might do so with great sorrow and pain deep in your heart. In some cases, you may be praising God with tears in your eyes, barely able to mouth the words. In some cases, you may not even be able to sing, but you may have to listen to the person standing next to you because you can't bear the words of the song and uttering the words of the song because you're afraid that at that moment you might not mean it. And when you leave after hearing the sermon and after listening to the words of the songs and all of those kinds of things, you might leave and you might still be the same. You might go away and you might think, I didn't get anything out of that. I don't know that that was for me there. I don't feel any different. What we get, though, as we are here is joy in the midst of sorrow. It's not a removal of sorrow altogether. It's joy in the midst of sorrow. That we're reminded that we as Christians are, as Paul says, sorrowful yet always rejoicing. That actually none of our praise is 100% joy. There is always a tinge of sorrow mixed in. While we're here, in this life, there will always be sorrow. In other words, he makes his people, his city, the people who can sing praise while the cancer rots away their bones. That's what he's making. You as a people are gathered here together singing praise, some of you with intense sorrow. Things that you may not even tell other people about. But he makes his people a people who get up in the morning, either coming to worship or there in your, in your homes on Monday through Saturday, sitting in your chair or opening your Bible, your Bible in your lap or whatever the situation is. His people coming to him, knowing that he is the source of protection. They have a calm surrender to their sovereign creator when their loved ones die, when they lose their job, when they're surrounded by uncertainty. See, what a tremendous gift we actually receive in the worship of the one true and living God as we come to him as needy beggars, paying homage to our sovereign creator. He makes himself known to us as a fortress. And even if you leave, and you go, I'm not any different right now than I was when I came in there. I've still got sorrow. He continues to bring you back to himself, continues to draw you in, and then you get on the other side of that trial and tribulation, and you look back and go, you know what? Come to think of it, he did really protect me. He, he did shelter me from the storm. 
And what does that do the next time you come in? You sing on the basis of Him making Himself known to you as a protector. The ramparts of your city are secure in His hands, in other words. See, the worship that characterizes the church is based on the history of God making Himself known to us as a fortress. That's the praise that reverberates from the city of God. We often feel like we come into church supposed to be distraction-free, right? I'm supposed to have all of the distractions removed. There's a superficiality in my mind that says, here's what worship is. Worship is me being free of distraction and receiving all the goosebumps. I get all the, all the goosebumps and all the, all the good feelings and all the stuff when I come in to praise. My kids are completely quiet, mainly because they're not in the room. They're, they're, they're way out somewhere else, making tons of noise with somebody else, so that I can remain distraction-free. And all of a sudden, worship for us becomes this distraction-free existence where we can focus on nothing but what God has for us. Let me ask you, are you right now, let's say you don't have any kids in the room, are you right now distraction-free? No. 100% of your life will be filled with distractions. Whether it's past history, feeling hungry, this guy's boring, he's going on too long, this person next to me has a perfume that I cannot stand. Whatever the case may be, you're always going to have distractions around you. If worship is supposed to be free of distractions, then what would you say to the person who's the single dad who just destroyed his marriage because of sin in his life, and he comes in and sits on the pew, or maybe on Monday he's sitting down on his couch with his Bible in his lap, and he's coming to the Lord in repentance of his sin. Do you think there's ever a moment when he's worshiping the Lord, that he doesn't think about his sin? That he doesn't think about all the circumstances that have brought him to this place? If worship is distraction-free, then what would you say to him whose mind is filled with distraction? The worship of the Lord, the praise that reverberates from the city of God is praise on the basis of of His providing the shelter and the protection and the security in the midst of all of those distractions. So you got kids next to you which are basically balls of distraction. And then when you have multiple kids, they don't multiply, they, they exponentially increase, right? They feed off one another. We got three kids, that's cubed, okay? Distraction cubed. The worship that reverberates from your heart is looking down at this little ball of distraction next to you going, I know that the Lord is showing her through me what it looks like to worship God. And in the midst of all that goes on in our family, to come into this place together with a church body and sing praises to His name, even when I don't feel like it. That's the kind of praise that reverberates from the city of God because God 
is making no, himself known to us as a fortress. So if God be among us, then we must praise him like that. It's not about the goosebumps. It's not about the show and the lights. It's praise like that. If God be among us, we must trust him. We must trust him. Look at verse 4. For behold, the kings assembled. They came together. As soon as they saw it, they were astounded. They were in panic. They took flight. Trembling took hold of them. Their anguish as of a woman in labor. By the east wind, you shattered the ships of Tarshish. As we have heard, so we have seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in, our, in the city of our God, which God will establish forever, Selah. In this, we see a similar picture to Psalm 2, verses 1 to 3. You'll remember this. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. And the next verse goes on to say, God just, he who sits in the heavens laughs. He just laughs at their pathetic attempt at a coup. And so also here, the kings of the earth advance on the city of God, the people of God, to overthrow them, but they end up fleeing in terror. And not only do they flee, but God actually chases them with the wind. So they're running away, and they're seeking to flee. And where would you flee? Well, if you're Jonah, when you flee from God, you go to Tarshish, right? And you try to get on a boat that, flee, that ha, ha, sails anywhere opposite of Nineveh. And so these people, they've come upon the city of God, and they've been stricken with terror, and so they run away, and God chases them with the wind. And before they get to their ships, he destroys their ships with the wind. So now they have nowhere to go. They're going to face the wrath of God. But God's people, his city, in the end, are established forever. They have nothing to fear, no matter what would come against them. Obviously, this is an image of several different scenes throughout Scripture that we know will play out and have played out. And the kind of victory that God's people can expect against a pagan and satanic world. Now, the first image that might come to mind for you, I think, as you hear this, is probably something that you would read like in Revelation, when Christ returns and destroys all wicked people who would come against his people, who would put them to death. So we get this scene in Revelation 17, verse 14, where the kings of the earth have come to make war on Christ's body. They come to put to death the people of God, perhaps the church, and gather together in a kind of a global persecution, if you can think about it that way. So Revelation 17, 14, it says this, The kings of the earth will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them. For He is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with Him are called chosen and faithful. That sound, you just put the word city in there. It's basically this psalm, essentially. The people of the world, the kings, are coming against the Lamb, against his city, against his people, and he is conquering them. He conquers them immediately. And then in the next chapter, we actually see the city of the world, no longer Mount Zion. We're not talking about the city of God. Now we're talking about the city of the world, Babylon, being destroyed. And so you, you flip over to the next chapter, Revelation 18, 17 to 20. This is them, the, the, 
ungodly people looking at the city that has been conquered, that, that the Lamb has conquered, and they're mourning over the city as they watch it burn. Listen to this. For in a single hour, all this wealth has been laid waste. And all shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors and all whose trade is on the sea, stood far off, and they cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning. What city was like the great city? That's Babylon. And they threw dust on their heads, and they wept and mourned, crying out, Alas, alas, for the great city, where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth. For in a single hour she has been laid waste. Rejoice over her. Now this is a word to the church, the city of God. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. So it's an image of this moment in time still in our future where Christ returns and all of those who would set themselves against the Lamb and against all of His anointed people will be wrecked in a single hour. will face the judgment seat of God near instantaneously. But it's more than that too. It's not just something we can expect in the future. It's something that's true of the body of Christ now. It's an image of a present reality that the world, as it seeks to come against Christ's body, can't actually do her harm. That's what's so difficult for us as Christians now to wrap our minds around, that the world can't do you harm if you are in Christ. And let me tell you, there is nothing more fearful to a de demonic world than a Christian who doesn't fear death. You understand that? That is the only threat a lost and dying world has over the body of Christ. We'll kill you if you utter his name. If you bow down and worship him, we'll put you to death. To which the Christian says, I don't fear death. What happens now? If you kill me, you only bring me into his presence quicker. Read the stories of martyrs throughout history. Read the story of Polycarp going to be burned at the stake, where they tell him to recant. Repent, and we will put out the flame. To the point where he says, I've served him for 86 years. And he's done me no harm. How at the hour of my death can I betray my Lord and my Savior? Well, what do you say? What do you say when you've got your can of gasoline and your match and you've got a person here who goes, burn me. What good is your gasoline and your match at that point if it's not a real threat to you as God's people? So if the kings of the earth surround God's city, his people, threatening to destroy them, and they go, go ahead. Well, what do we do now? No, you're supposed to bow down and worship us. You're supposed to cower in fear. You're not supposed to say, okay. You're supposed to run. There's nothing more fearful to a demonic 
lost world than a Christian who doesn't fear death. So if God be among us, that's what it means to trust Him. What you find there in a church where God is active is that the people inside don't fear the things that are going on in the world. They trust Him. If God be among us, we must trust Him. If God be among us, we must think about Him. We must think about Him. Look at verse 9. We have thought on your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of your temple, as your name, O God, so your praise reaches to the ends of the earth. Your, your right hand is filled with righteousness. Let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgment. The phrase translated there, we have thought on, means to ponder carefully. We, we sit and think about. We, we mull over. We ponder much about God's steadfast love and His faithfulness. And it seems as though verses 10 and 11 are the result of the deep pondering. So they thought about the steadfast love. And in verse 10, here's the conclusion that we come to. As your name, O God, so your praises reach, praise reaches to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is filled with righteousness. Let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. The people of God, hear this, are a thinking people. I don't know about you, but there is a muscle within me that likes to grow fat on being spoon-fed truth. I like to just have it distilled for me, told to me simply. I like to not have to use my brain. That is not what we as the people of God actually are. We're a people who love God with our heart, with our soul, with our mind, and with our strength. As much as we like to leave the mind out of it, what we come together to do here on Sunday morning is open up God's Word and think deeply about Him. We're a people who dwell on thoughts of God, who linger long over the Scriptures and think about the ways they fit together and what it means about God. We scour the pages of Scripture so that we might learn more about Him. We meditate on its teachings. What does that actually mean for us? What does that say for us? We think about it while we're at work and doing all kinds of other things. We think about all the implications. What does God's Word say about the widgets that I'm putting together here? We're people who strive to understand what God has revealed in His Word. That's not to say that the gospel isn't simple. Doesn't Paul say to the Corinthians, I came not with lofty speech or wisdom. I came knowing nothing except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Shouldn't we just be very simple people? It's one thing to teach the gospel with simplicity. It's another thing to be simple-minded people. The same apostle who wrote that word to the Corinthians, that I came with simplicity. I didn't come with worldly wisdom. The same apostle who wrote that went on to write the most complicated letter in all of Scripture. It's so difficult to figure out that we're still trying to parse to this day. But that is true that there is the good news of the crucified and resurrected Savior. 
It's a very simple message that the rest of the world looks at and says, that is foolishness. How could I possibly come to worship a Christ who came and was a peasant and was put to death? How could I possibly worship that Savior? It's foolishness to the world who is perishing. And God has used the foolishness of the gospel to expose worldly wisdom for what it is. But that doesn't mean that we should stop there and we should stop trying to understand all that God has revealed to us in His Word. We're not anti-intellectual. We want to apply our minds and to study God's Word. But you notice that it's not mere investigation that we're interested in. No, we want to ponder His steadfast love. Why? Because that's the fuel of praise. When we come to understand more of who God is, the goal of that is that we would turn to Him in praise and adoration. It fuels our praise. I pray all the time. That we don't want to do any of this, the sermons, the teachings on Wednesday night, any of the things that we do. We don't want to do that simply as a mental exercise. Make ourselves sound smart in front of our friends. We don't want to do it that way. We want to know more about who God is because in knowing more of Him, we become more like Him. So as a people, as a church, a church whom God is living among, If God really is among us, that means that the thoughts of his people who are living in his city are on him, are about him. If God is among us, we must think about him. Finally, if God is among us, we must share him. Look at verse 12. Walk about Zion. Go around her. Number her towers. Consider well her ramparts. Go through her citadels that you may tell the next generation that this is God, our God forever and ever. He will guide us. So the encouragement here is to consider this group of people called God's people whom he has redeemed, whom he lives in and among, that God has built and in whom he dwells. In other words, think about the church that you're in. Think about the people that are next to you on the pew. Consider the miracle of God's redemption of their souls and indwelling them with His very Spirit. Just consider that for a moment. That the people across the room and the people next to you are indwelt by God's very Spirit, having been redeemed by the blood of His Son on the cross. And after all that consideration and all our pondering, and all our turning to worship God and praise Him for what He's done. All that looking and living in the city of God that He has dwelt with His people. What then happens? After there's praise because of what God's done, what then happens next? The result is that you may tell the next generation. It's meant to be shared. Now that's personal, first and foremost. It's personal. You, parent, are to share with your children. Hear me, parents. The church 
is not the chief teacher of your child. You are. The church on Sunday cannot undo all the things that you have not taught from Monday to Saturday. Period. The church cannot undo the things that you have taught from Monday to Saturday. The church, at best, can reinforce the things that you're saying at home. So, if you sit here in the worship service and you go, I don't think my kid understood a word that guy said. Your job as a parent is to go home and interpret. That's your job. Your child is here in the worship service, and we've made that plain that we think children, especially children from four on up, especially from kindergarten on up, maybe a little pre-K on up, should be here in the worship service. We've made that point, and many families choose to take their young children and put them in church, and that's fine. We're okay with that. We know there's going to be sounds, right? You're going to sit here, and you're going to be, you're going to have distractions. We've already talked about that, haven't we? You're going to have distractions. There's going to be cooing. There's going to be sounds here and there. And, and some of you are tempted to look over there, smile at the little babies doing their thing. I get it. It's fine. I understand that. Why do we do that? Because worship is a language. Worship has to be understood over time. Your children have to see you do it. Do you talk to your children before they can speak English? Do you? You don't just wait till they understand English to talk to them. No, you're changing their diaper and you're going, oh, you don't give me Don't you? That's exactly what you do. It's barely English, but it's English. Right? That's what you do. And you tell them what you expect of them. No, you're going to eat your peas, aren't you? Yes, you're going to eat your peas. You do that, even though they're like, I have no idea what this crazy lady's doing. <laughs> All right? They have no idea what you're saying. But you speak to them because you anticipate that over the next couple of years, the way they learn English is by, what, by listening to you. You read to them before they can understand what's going on in the book. They just see the picture of the bunny hopping along. But you read to them, why? Because over the next two years, it's proven that the kids who are read to, the kids who are spoken to, the kids who are talked to, learn the language faster. So it is in worship. You bring your kids in, you let them see you worship. You go home and you tell them what's going on. You and your, your spouse sit down on the couch and you read the Bible and you talk about it together at night and you talk about the things that are going on in your life with them in the room and they have no idea what's going on. But over time, they begin to understand what worship is. That is your job. If you are the city of God, if God is in fact dwelling in your midst, your job as a parent is to convey that to the next generation. And that's how you do it. You don't panic over one individual day because they get lost. 
It's mounted up over long periods of time. Be patient. Your kids coo now and they make noises now. Relax with the reins. Don't let the reins go, but you can relax. It's okay. We understand. What we understand is that our kids are being taught what worship is. But it's also corporate. The difference between a church who has come to know God as a subject like mathematics and English versus the church who has come to know God personally is that the former, the one who knows him as a subject, doesn't change and doesn't care to tell a single soul about him. But the ones who have come to know God personally, for whom he has been a refuge for them, whom he has been a stable force in the midst of a storm, whom he has sheltered and protected, whom he has loved and cared for, whom he has brought through all the trials in life, not only have changed personally, but care deeply to tell other people about him. Do you understand that what you're going through right now, I've been there, but you know what I've got? I've got a Savior who loves me, who cares for me, who died for me, and who saved me, and who I'm going to live with forever and all of eternity. That's the church who has come to know God personally. He has been to them a fortress in the midst of a storm, and I want you to know about him. Do you know God as a subject, or do you know him personally? In other words, are you a people in whom God dwells? Friends, how can you look at the crucifixion of Christ and not be overcome with joy for what's happened there? The only Son of God took on flesh, lived a perfect life, and went to the cross and suffered the wrath of God for every sin you've ever committed. Rose again on the third day and by grace, through faith, has offered you eternal life in His name. For free. You did nothing to afford it. He provided it. 100%. How could you possibly look at that and not care to give that to someone else, much less your own children? That's love. That's how you, the city of God, actually love the people around you is give them the gospel and tell it to them even if they surround your city with swords or maybe weapons more fierce than that threatening to undo you. Death can do nothing but bring you into the presence of Christ. You have nothing to fear. So are we people who demonstrate that God is among us by the quality of our praise? Not that there's no tears, not that there's goosebumps, not that we're enamored by the sound and the lights, but that we come with genuine hearts, even when our hearts feel so distant and lethargic. Do we come with genuine praise? Do we demonstrate that we are a people of God, that God is living in our midst by our trust? Are we a political church? Where depending on who is in office is depending on how our mood is that day and how fearful we are about future events? 
Are we that kind of church who are afraid constantly of the future and the world around us? Do we demonstrate that God is among us in our thought life? In our church, we're going to study the Bible. We're going to dig deep in our children's programming, in our youth, with our adults. We're going to dig deep into the Scripture. It's what we do. That is the only card in our pocket, is opening the Bible and studying it. That's it. That's all we've got. If you're here for another reason, we don't have it. We're not good at it. This is what we do. We study God's Word. We come together and pray. We have prayer meetings. We've got two every week. We're adding more constantly. Thursday at 4 o'clock. If you don't want to come in the afternoon, get up really early in the morning. Come Tuesday at 6.45. Come together and pray as a church body. We want to lead the church to think continually about the Lord. Do we demonstrate in who we tell that God is among us? Are we an evangelistic church? Do we tell other people? Do we teach our children? We're planning right now a parenting seminar coming up October 20th and 21st where we want to teach parents how to bring the gospel to their children. Set aside time just for that on a Friday night and a Saturday morning just to come together and say, what do we do with these little ones that God has entrusted to us? That was not just a sermon to get to some announcements, I promise. But it is to say, we want to be oriented this way in the way that we demonstrate to the world that we are a place where God is working. It's in this way. How do we evaluate that as a church? It's by doing these things. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you move among us. We don't evaluate that by money and people and things like that. We evaluate that by the things that your spirit within us is moving us to do. The fruit that our church exhibits is a demonstration of your presence among us. So I pray that you would be active. Move in the hearts of our parents, our grandparents, our singles. That we would contemplate and think about how it is that we take this faith that we hold so dear and pass it on to the next generation. We share you with the people around us. We trust you, that we love you and praise your name, that we think deeply about you. Make us that kind of people, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. If you live in the Tuscaloosa area and are looking for a church, we'd love for you to visit. Our service times are Sunday mornings at 10.30 and Wednesday nights at 6.15.